welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. One of the more terrifying events for any parent is seeing their child born and rushed off to the NICU. Though we might talk about how it's so much better compared to losing our children, and there's no doubt that's the case. The typical experience for families in the NICU isn't one that we would wish on anyone. Some of the best NICUs in terms of medical care are those least equipped to deal with the psychological and bonding needs of new families. Parents can be left with little time with their baby, no room for them to stay, and advice that counters their instincts and even science to care for the newest member of their family. Sharing a blend of her own experience in this regard, the science around neurological and general development for preterm or low-worth babies, and an understanding of the needs of families today, Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum joins me to help families who have either already experienced this event and need help processing, are in the midst of this experience, or don't know if it's something they may face in the future. Her compassion and knowledge are unsurpassed in this, and I believe this is something that is invaluable for all families to hear. I am so pleased to have back with me again today, Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum, who you all know as the founder of Nurture Neuroscience. She's also the creator of the Bebo Mia Sleep Education Program and runs that as well. And if you have not heard the first episode we did on babies' brains and what they need, please go back and listen to that one. But I am so happy to have you back again today. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. I feel like the first episode we recorded is a really good lead into this one because we'll be referring to it a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I like I I'm serious guys, if you haven't heard it yet, I would pause this, go back, listen to it and then come back and join us. Or I guess you could yeah. listen here and then go back and then listen again. However you want to do it. But um we are talking today, it's a little different. So last time we talked a lot about generally what a baby's brain needs to develop. Um, you know, what parenting kind of practices are associated with that and everything. And now we're getting very specific into babies who have a, a, a difficult start of being in the NICU. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a group of kids that tends to get forgotten. And I know parents panic a lot about it. I had written, you know, I remember I was saying to people, I'm doing this episode because I shared a post on, I think it was Instagram. And it was about the contact that we need and the stress for babies when they're separated from their parents. And it's the Niels Bergman work. Remember, you? Yes, we've yeah. talked about this. Okay. And people were feeling immense guilt. They were like, well, my baby was in the NICU. I didn't get to do that. How stressful. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, it's triggering. And yeah. it's, it's heartbreaking. So we wanted to do an episode on these babies who are more vulnerable who have started out with difficulties and are possibly put in environments and parents put in situations that are not, can I say ideal? Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. Not ideal. Mm -hmm. And um, so Greer, of course, is the perfect person to talk about this, not only with her background with her PhD in neuroscience, but your experience too, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I think I'm so passionate about talking about this and preparing people for it and just spreading the word about it because I did have the background that I have at the time. I had helped many families with babies in the NICU as a doula, but once I got into the environment, was not prepared or supported. And I didn't have the ideal experience either. So, so there's a lot I wish I knew. 
So let's start with this. So we're going to get into all of the things that families need to know um, if they're entering this, but also hopefully after the fact, how they might be able to make up for some of the things that they don't have control over. Yeah. But let's start with your story because, you know, you've lived it. And as you just said, it was completely different having the knowledge in one realm versus being the person who's the parent in this. So what, what happened for you? What, What's the so in my pregnancy, I had complete placenta previa. So my uh, cervix was completely covered by the placenta. And so a cesarean birth was going to be the way to, to deliver my baby. And in that, you know, development of that, I was switched from midwifery care to high risk OBGYN care. Um. I mean, the difference between that type of care in my case and in a lot of people's cases is vast in terms of, you know, in midwifery care, your emotional um, well-being is always supported. You're, you know, you're given way more information, um, especially related to like nurturing yourself and the baby. Um, and so, yeah, I was I was switched into high risk, high risk OBGYN care. Um And then it just like the whole birth just turned into like the beyond opposite of what I ever, ever wanted. So the, my baby was, was scheduled to be born at 37 weeks. No, was it 36? I think it was 36 or 37 weeks because it was risky if I actually had gone into labor spontaneously. Um, so there was that. And then, you know, because of that, they give baby or they give you um, a corticosterone shot, which matures baby's lungs. Um, and at the time, I was like, I was like, I really want full informed consent on this because I know that that corticosterone shot is doing a lot more than just maturing a baby's lungs. And that was a whole fight. So I mean, I just had all these obstacles of like, re- and this is the message for people out there too: is like, when you get, get informed consent and you are agreeing to something, knowing everything, then you can also have plans to like mitigate those effects, right? And to like... Can I just ask here, when we're talking about informed consent, when you're dealing with OBGYNs, hospitals, how do you go about really getting that? Because I just, my little experience, I had midwives for both, but the times I had to go in I mean, it was like a piece of paper, just sign it. We're not even going over. It was the lack of time to go over. So how do you advocate for that? How did you get informed consent from them? It was, it was, I mean, it was a conversation more than actually getting it. So I I think I had, so basically what happened was uh, with placenta priva, you have bleeding. And so uh, at a certain point, you have to stay in the hospital until the birth. So at 32 weeks, I had a bleed where I had to then then live in the hospital onward. So that that was when they were giving me the shot. And so I had a lot of contact with, with all of the team that was taking care of me. And so it was a resident who came in and said, okay, we're going to give you the shot. It just matures the baby's lungs. Don't worry about it. Like, and I was like, that's not true. I'm not sure if you know if that's true or not. Um, I'm like, I'd like to talk to um, the attending physician, which I would, you know, I was in a learning hospital, certain things I was okay with the resident, other things I was like, I want to speak, I just want to speak to the attending, which is, I think if you ever have questions, 
um, it's good to have the whole team there. I'm not saying residents don't have answers, but I just feel like if you're not getting the answers that you want, it's you can always ask for a more senior doctor. It feels wrong that someone just walked in and gave you something that wasn't true. It's fact, oh, it just does this. Don't worry about it. And that's if you don't have the knowledge ahead of time. That's what you're going to think. Like, that just feels like a huge flaw in the system <laughs> altogether. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there was so many of these incidents. And I feel like I came out of this relatively untraumatized because I was advocating for the full consent and I was being hurt, making sure I was heard, you know, in the process. So for that, yes, then the, the other doctors came in and I said, you know, I know I'm a neuroscientist. I know what the shot is going to do. I know it's going to affect my baby's developing stress system as well. Um, and then I could ask my, and then they said, yes, we know that. And, and I said, okay, uh, I think everybody should know. Um, and I could ask the rest of my questions. I'm like, am I getting this shot? Because you think I might be going, you know, there's a possibility I could be going into labor very soon. And I said, yes. I said, okay, like that makes perfect sense. Right? Like, this is a risk and this is the benefit. And now I can make my informed consent and say, yes, let's go ahead and do this. Um, so yeah, so I had that happen. And then another even more horrible situation that I had an MRI to make sure that my placenta had not grown into my uterus and that MRI showed it did. So that I would have to have an even earlier birth at 34 weeks. So then I was like, you know, when you have a baby at 37 weeks, you're not necessarily in NICU territory necessarily. Um, but at 34 weeks, you definitely are. Babies at 34 weeks do do really well. I had lots of conversations with doctors. That, like they all came in, fully answered my questions. That was all great. Um, but then I was confronted with, okay, we're going to, we're going to be in the NICU. Um, in the end, my placenta actually was fine. Thank goodness. And that MRI didn't show, they, they, they didn't read it accurately or it didn't show the, you know, it showed something worse than was actually there, which was, which was very good news. Um, but yeah, we ended up then in the NICU. So wait, just let me get this straight because they misread it you they went early so yeah. you wouldn't have gone early had they actually yes and so I was asking questions like can we use a con I've, I've worked with MRIs I'm like can we use a contrast dye to actually make sure this border and they were like no we're we're definitely sure I was like is there a higher strength magnet like do we have like a 7T magnet somewhere and they were maybe using like a lower strength magnet and they're like no like this is the best picture we're gonna get um I did get a second opinion as well and that did you know so that those images were showing that so that was another very terrible yeah very terrible thing I'm speechless yeah. like oh, I'm yeah. just speechless at this that is I mean that was one of the things at the time where I was like why don't we have technology to confirm that? Right? Like, right. That's what you would think is that if a hospital is saying we don't have the contrast dye, we don't have a higher level magnet, what do you have? Like, yeah. don't you think if you're making decisions on, in this case, how early you're going to bring a baby into the world, risking yeah. other complications and everything, or anyone going in for an MRI, shouldn't you have the best tools available? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And they were just convinced. My, I don't know if it was my intuition or me being like trying to be super, super positive, but I was like, I don't think this is true. Like, I do not think this is true. Like, I feel fine. Like, I don't think, yeah. And I was right in the end. Who knows if that was, you know, my body giving me that information or just, you know, trying to be really, really positive about it. Um, so, yes, I, every, every, all everything turned out way better with the birth because that wasn't true. But, yes, absolutely. My son was born three weeks early for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's brutal. It's brutal. So, so everything I knew about the NICU, I had supported clients with babies in the NICU. Um, and I've seen a bunch of different ones. So the one I was in was actually the best medical NICU in the city I lived in, but it was not mother baby friendly. I love how you just specified that because... Yeah. Like when we talk about what's best, there's that medical element, but then there's the actual familial support for everyone there. And they do seem to be almost at odds with each other in certain yes. medical settings that and the research you get... doesn't support that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. So I guess that actually raises, and I, I'll let you finish, but then it raises the question for me as to you can say you're the best medically in terms of outcomes and whatnot, but yet so much of what we know, and I know you're going to go to it. And this is, you know, Niels Bergman's work, yeah. really that connection, that mother baby friendliness or parent baby friendliness, whether whoever yeah. it is, is really crucial to outcomes. Yes, it would be there. There's there. That specific NICU would their outcomes would be, you know, monumentally better if they, if they were parent friendly, parent baby friendly. So, so yeah, all of the, in, from the whole state, I was in all of the highest risk babies with like the, the most serious medical complications were sent to this NICU. So they were like handling the most intense cases. And I, and the nurses were telling me that the other hospitals with the other NICUs that in, in this kind of group of hospitals were parent baby friendly had rooming in where you would actually sleep in the same room as your baby during the entire NICU stay. Um, and so it was bizarre to know that this hospital group knew those benefits and that had not translated it yet to their most vulnerable populations. I'm sorry. So I they know. know this and they just didn't do it. So, okay. Sorry, we're going to go back. So you now have a 34-week-old newborn. Yes. Who enters this very medicalized NICU. Yes. That is not. So when you say it's not mother-baby friendly, what did that mean for you? Great question. Obviously, no rooming in, as you mentioned. but No rooming in. Um, and it, the contact with the babies were so limited. So I was allowed to hold my son for one hour every three hours. So he had, I was, I could hold him for one hour and then he had to rest for two hours. And then I'm sorry, he had to rest like as if being a, with you is stressful for him. That was one of the many lies I was told in this Nikki, which I knew was a lie at the time. So I think I was on a high of like the, 
the birth going well in terms of like the placenta not being super complicated and that my baby was really healthy and I was recovering really well and healthy. And I was, and you know, we, we hear this a lot with birth, like everyone was healthy, so it was great. And there's still, there's so much more and I'm going to keep going and talk more about it. There was so much more that was wrong. So yeah, that was the biggest lie. Some of the nurses admitted it wasn't true. And I would just hold him as much as possible. So I would kind of just close my curtain, feed him, hold him. And often I would go way beyond that hour. But they have their systems in place where they have to get certain readings from their machines that look a certain way in order to discharge a baby. So you're kind of really, you know, you know, really kind of like pushed to go by their rules so that you can get the heck out of there and get your baby home. Because it was kind of like, for us, we didn't have many issues. We, they just needed to have certain readings of like breathing and, and feeding um, in order to discharge us. So it was kind of like, in my mind at the time, it was like, all right, just like, let's get what they need so we can get out of here. So were you, I guess it's kind of different because you also had to heal from the C-section. So you were staying at the hospital as well. I was staying at the hospital. They let me stay for three days, but our stay was 10 days long in the NICU. So where were you? That was another whole other thing was that, you know, we always talk about with birth that a baby needs two levels of support. So usually like their mother or the birthing person is their first level of support. And then the mother or birthing person, they need the next level of support to support them. Um, And in that way, you know, the person who's given birth is regulated and then they can give that regulation to the baby. And that was, there was nothing there for that for me. So my legs were swollen. I needed healthy food. I needed water. I needed someone to be taking care of me. I was in pain. I had to have my pain meds every, you know, certain number of hours. And I was basically given like an uncomfortable chair and it was like, deal. And I had to be like, can someone get me another chair to elevate my legs? I'm like, I need to elevate my legs to heal. This is appalling. Like, okay. There was no one to, no one took, no one took care of me except my partner. Um, but yeah, this is, this was like, yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. So once, so you're saying at the end of three days, you had to go home. Yeah. And if you were at the hospital overnight, you had to sit in a chair. Is that how? Yes. So the, some of my nurses who were taking care of me in the postpartum ward, they said, if you refuse to leave, they'll let you stay until the baby leaves. And so I tried that. And then I was told, nope, you're going to heal better at home. Um, You're leaving. Like there's, and, and, and I went back to those nurses and I was like, what the heck? They're still kicking me out. And they were like, it's worth a try. Like sometimes, you know, I tried to be really forceful um, about it, but I did have to go after three days. So then I would, yeah, then I would spend the night at home and go, you know. How do you heal when you're separated from your baby? Yeah, it's a really big question. Um, I don't 
know if I did start to heal until I took them home. Yeah. I can see that because the stress of that separation, like we look at, you know, the work and I know we'll talk about it again on that stress for babies, but I feel like that stress would be equally present in a birthing parent. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was like, again, riding on that high of like, we're all okay. Like the worst case scenario didn't happen. And I had that in my mind of like, play this NICU's game so you can get out. Like that was kind of like my mantra. So I would, yeah, I would like go home. I would pump throughout the night and every waking hour be at the hospital, right? I'd wake up, go there, be there until like 8 or 9 p.m., go home, pass out, and then, you know, repeat. But I was on like some kind of autopilot, like, yeah, was not in like a safe feeling, like nurtured, being taken care of healing space whatsoever. Yeah. 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 So at the end of you go through 10 days, you play their game yeah. and obviously your son is okay. Yeah. You get him yeah. home. How do you start to heal at that point? Yeah. I mean, I was so excited. I mean, so beyond the like you holding him is too exhausting lie, which I was like, I know that's not true. I know about kangaroo care. I know about zero separation. I know that every single system in his body is doing better when I'm holding him. Um, I was also told all these other things about like, oh, when you take him home, you have to keep him on the same three hour schedule. Right. And then, and also um, that I should be pumping and feeding him a bottle most of the time because he'd get too exhausted from breastfeeding. Are you like, kidding me? That doesn't make any sense. I just, how does a place that is supposedly reputable medically continue to provide bullshit to? The way I dealt with it at the time was I just laugh. I'd be like, that is not true. But Um, so many people might believe that though. Like that's the unfortunate part is you think about how many families, like your level of expertise going into this is well beyond that of most families. Right. So I hear this and all I can think are these families. And I've spoken to some, I have had clients where I hear what they've been told and you're just going, this is so unfair to the parent, to the child, to the entire unit being lied to about something. And it's a really hard line to then walk and say, well, actually what you were told is false because then comes a whole layer of, of guilt and what do we do then? And did I do wrong? And as a parent, you know, you don't want to have to face that. Um, even if it's not your fault, even if you've been lied to for all of it, that's. Yeah, Yeah, I know. And some babies stay a lot longer than 10 days in the NICU. And, you know, for me in my situation, I was like, I'm holding him a lot. He was really, really sleepy otherwise. And I was like, I just did my best to get him home because I knew if I didn't do what they did, he'd be there longer and then it would be more separation. And I knew because, because the brain is so plastic and flexible, I knew that what happened, like him getting that corticosterone shot, him spending that stay in the NICU. I was like, I'm just going to hold, I'm going to hold this baby 
and feed him when he wants and he's going to sleep however he wants and all the things. And like, I know that that is going to build his brain, you know, in the best possible way um, and make up for it. Right. Because babies do have a lot of plasticity um, in that, in those early times. I am so glad you bring that up because that is kind of, you get home and there's this fear of, all the interventions, the separation. I know there's yep. been work on even the lights in the NICU impacting yep. circadian rhythm development, et cetera. Yep. So you, I, I want to hear what you did. Obviously you said, hold them all the time, everything beyond like, what is the best thing when you get home from the NICU, mm-hmm. what is the best thing to do in order to kind of overcome yeah. the many things that, that, cause yeah. there's also, I mean, I know, and we have a lot of different stuff to to go on here, but, um, and I want to get to kind of each of these kind of, we, we've got a list of things here, guys, that we're going to yeah. have to go through to talk about. But one of them is here, this overcoming after. And because with the NICU research I've read, there's the light issue, there's the the lack yeah. of, of touch, the sound, the pain from yep. procedures, the, yep. you know, they're constantly prodded and, and everything. Yep. So when we think about those in terms of longer term development, we want to think about what facilitates overcoming that. As you said, the brain is so plastic. And mm-hmm. so you obviously had the best to come home and say, I know all this. I am yes. now going to do what is best. So if you have a NICU baby, what is the best thing and how long after can, can you do this stuff? Because I think about a family who may have an eight month old listening who was in the NICU and didn't know right away is doing things Mm -hmm. at eight months still going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really great questions. My introduction to all of this was actually in an undergraduate course, my developmental neuroscience class. We saw a video in that class of this revolutionary NICU where they didn't have bright lights. They didn't have constant beeping. Babies were held skin to skin constantly and, you know, did whatever it is between like 200 and 800% better in every single way. Right. Um, So those were all concerns of mine. I was like lower, you know, I could control the lights a little bit. I was like, I want, yeah, I'm going to talk about like other things you can influence in your baby's NICU environment but that's one of them. The beeping, every time the beeping went off, I was like, I know that my baby's cortisol spiking. I'm like, that beeping is doing nothing. Like the beeping is alerting nothing, right? So many things can be avoided and changed. But yes, this is a really, really good question. And I think it's just important for parents to know that, yeah, the brain is building the stress stress systems, um, and other systems that, you know, support mental health and physical health, like throughout at least the first three years of infancy, right? Like from conception all the way up to three. And it is never too late to do these things. It's never, never too late. You can always be building resilience into the brain. You can always be building, you know, you're changing baby's epigenetics and DNA to be actually building proteins in their stress systems that can be you know, helping them recover from these kinds of situations are really, really helpful. Yeah. Which is so good to hear because I think families need to have hope after yes. facing this. And what you said about your your class, it reminds me of my talk with um, Jim McKenna, who mentioned in his, you know, we get to this stage with parenting where it's like either everything academics know and research on this is wrong 
Right. Or what's happening because I saw that video 17 years ago. Right. That's what I mean. Like we've had (laughs) research on this for almost, well, and they did that even before. So for decades, we've had this information and yet it's not being implemented and it keeps getting ignored. And whether it's parenting books, advocating different styles of parenting that are not conducive to what human infants need or Nick Hughes who are they're refusing to change they're refusing to invest the money to educate re-educate their staff to re-educate their protocols to figure out okay what does the healthy readout you know heart rate and breathing readout look like when a baby is doing skin to skin and like that's so important because yes if your baseline it's if the baseline is based off babies being separate, we know their responses are different when they're being held. So their sleep is different. Everything, their physiology is different. So if you're looking for specific things that are based on a baby who is separate, you're looking at it wrong, right? It's it's like for years, we finally had to catch up that the feeding charts, growth charts were all based on formula fed babies. And it posed problems because that was not what was happening when a child was was breast or chest fed. That's not how that goes. So NICU is another area. And I hadn't even thought about that. But that's true. Mm-hmm. All of their readouts, all of their assessments are based on the idea of separation. So how are you going to get those readouts when mm-hmm. your physiology will be inherently different when in contact with a parent? Yeah. And that's a and that's a financial investment for all those NICUs to to make, right? Which is so overdue. Just could we not get researchers doing this? Like I feel like there's gotta be a researcher out there who could take this as a study and be like, we are going to get this data and then here, we're just gonna give it to you, hospital. Here you yep. go. This yeah. is your I mean, data. Miles Bergman and Jill Bergman are doing this. Yeah. Um and I mean, we just have to we got to support them to get this out to to as many hospitals as possible because they do actually train nurses in NICUs and they do train staff um, to do it this way. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I wonder, I mean, cause I now work with families who are in this position. A lot of, you know, if, if the word gets out, people will call me when they get into the NICU and be like, how can I make the best out of this? Right. Um, and the biggest way is to sort of just refuse to put the baby alone in, in the bassinet. So let's start with this. Cause this is the yeah. first thing that we had was, yeah. you know, we've talked about your story, the, the science behind it, the wrong, but there are a few features here that are so important. And the first one you mentioned is this zero separation. Yeah. So yes. what does that mean for families? And I know COVID adds a whole other no, I was thinking layer. It was, I mean, my sister-in-law shared a heartbreaking story. My nephew was in the hospital. He's older, but she was there. And across the hall was a baby, a few months old in for something 
alone all day. The mom could only oh come on weekends and she wasn't allowed to pick up the baby. They said normally they have people holding the babies, but yeah. because of COVID, they couldn't get the people in to no. do the holding the babies. So this little baby spent all day alone unless the nurse came for a while to change, do something else, but was just, oh and I think about that poor, and every weekend the mom was in all day as much as she could, but for whatever reason, work, yeah. I don't know the situation, other kids at home, you know, there's so many different ways in which it doesn't work. Yeah. That little baby spent, she doesn't know how long baby was actually there for, but their whole visit of days of alone in bed. So it is, I know this is an added layer, but for families in the situation, how do they get zero separation if they can, but if they can't, how do they maximize that time you know, if they are in a very medicalized NICU where there isn't rooming in, what are the things that they can do in this situation? Yeah, yeah this is great. So yeah, so Niles Bergman has a program called Zero Separation, which I think is real a really great term. And it's also something that is, uh, uh, you know, something we should be, um, what's the right word? Um, not inspired to do, but have an intention for, right? So so many things we cannot complete, you know, at, you know, to any sort of like extreme, but yeah, zero separation. I, you know, the way I was thinking of it in my experience, and this is what I would recommend to families as well. It's the intention, right? The amount of skin to the most amount of skin to skin you can possibly get is, you know, the best that we can do, right? Because we don't, we can't control what kind of NICU we're going to be in. We can't control what kind of staff is going to be there. Um, if they let us be there at night, um, you know, all this kind of stuff, but to advocate for it. And the reasons why, first of all, is it's, you know, beneficial to baby from head to toe, right? It's buffering their stress. It's helping them regulate all of their systems to grow better, to digest food better, you know, to get breathe better, all of it. But it, we also don't think about it. Skin to skin is also transforming us as parents. So after we birth a baby, whether we're the birthing parent or the partner, we're in. We're also in a, a period of like massive brain change as well. And so the more we hold the baby skin to skin in those early weeks um, is going to be critical to, to grow the parent brain in both parents. And that makes parenting easier forever. It doesn't mean that you can't be responsive, you know, if, you know, if you've actually gone through that and it didn't happen very much, but it, it really helps if you can, if you can have, have that happen um, for baby and parents. I would say probably like we talked about the infant brain, you know, shaping for three years. Yeah. Would you say the same thing about the parent brain that if you're late to the game, can you start holding your one-year-old way more being intentionally yes. working on that proximity? Will that help the parent brain develop? Yes, completely. Yes. So there is, I don't, I don't think the, the sensitive period for the parent brain has been defined as clearly as the infant brain. Um, and and the, the most changes do happen, happen pretty soon after birth. But no matter what, having, you know, starting to have, you know, skin to skin later on, being close, being responsive later on is still going to be developing, increasing your amount of oxytocin and dopamine. And all of these things lead to higher empathy, higher responsiveness, 
um, and stress regulation as well. Yeah. Um, I imagine that stress regulation piece is crucial if you've been through the NICU down the line, because inherently that's going to be highly stressful to all parties involved. Yeah. So when you are advocating for it, know that it's not just something that's nice to do. It's something that's really important to your baby and also really important for you, right? So holding the baby in the baby's brain is buffering their stress, which is influencing a lot of their development. And then you as a parent, it's releasing oxytocin, uh, dopamine, other, you know, other hormones that are helping your brain develop and, and, and protective against, um, postpartum mental health issues, um, and lifelong stuff too. Um, it's, it's important. It's vital. And, you know, Niles Bergman says, you know, in medical situations, people are sworn to do no harm and separating is harm. So, and I would say, I think they have, the Bergmans have stuff online, right? That people can print up and bring in terms of your advocacy. If you need it, that would be a great spot to, to check out. And I will um, have to remember to put that in the show notes so that, you know, that link is right there for people to go and look at so that if you are in that situation, print it up, bring it in again, Mm -hmm. though, you may not be successful in your advocacy. You may not get all that you want, but being aware of it, you can't beat yourself up for that. It's being aware, doing your best. And then that intention will carry forward after the fact. A hundred percent. Like that was my situation. I was like, you know, I was given, I had this three hour loop I was living on there. Right. So I could like hold my baby and feed him. And then I actually did need almost those entire other two hours to put them, you know, change them, put them down, pump, go get something to drink, get something to eat and then come back and do it all over again. Ideally I would have had someone else there to be doing, you know, the skin to skin, which my husband was there to do very often. Um, but then I was still running around doing the, doing all that stuff, right? I still needed my layer of support of I needed someone to care for me too. Um, and in and in like updated NICUs, that is the case. The dyad, the birthing person and the baby, is the patient, and there are doctors and nurses there to make sure both are healing and doing well. So that does exist. That does exist. How do people know? Is, is it advertised online what kind of NICUs they have? I mean, I like to think if you have a choice as to hospital, like ahead yep. of time, yep. how do you know what, how, what do you look for online? Do you just ask when you're there, hey, what kind of NICU yeah. do you have? Yeah. If you're pregnant with multiples or if you have any high risk, um, you know, factors in your pregnancy as probably a really good idea is to say, I'd like to meet with someone to talk about what's going on in the NICU. And then you want to ask things like, are parents able to room in? Um, are we allowed, you know, do we, can we hold baby skin to skin all day? Because there are a lot of NICUs that that is possible. I'm telling you right now. Um, I've, I've worked with a lot of people where they've had really good experiences like that. Um, definitely want to ask that. You want to ask about how they support body feeding because in the hospital I was in, so in the States, it's called the Baby Friendly Initiative. I'm not sure if it's in Canada. It is too. Yes, yeah. it okay. is. So in the hospital I was in, they're like, yep, yeah, we're baby friendly, but 
but not in the NICU. The NICU is not baby friendly. So like there's that actually is a great way to put it. I think that is like, yes, our NICU is not baby friendly. We have babies, but we're not friendly to them. And that is how it goes. Exactly. So that's important to ask in advance um, for sure. Um, So yeah, this, the, you know, the holding skin to skin, you want to have, um, a tool to help you, right? They've got like stretchy bands that you can wear um, and that kind of thing that can really help. But yeah, I think for a lot of parents, knowing that it's benefiting everybody is really helpful. And to like, you know, ignite that passion to to be there and advocate and say like, you know, you said I can hold them for an hour. I'm going to, you know, do it as long as I want until you come in and try to um, yeah, stop. But I think that 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 going back to like the intention of zero separation is that is that in itself, right? Because if you are in that situation, you know, similar to I was in, where where you were like, okay, you're going to end up here for indefinitely because they need to get this certain reading. You're kind of um, need to just do your best to move uh- on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we aim for that. Now you touched on it already, but I'm curious how you deal with it. The NICU environment, we've talked about the lights, the sounds, the everything which you acknowledge are stressful. I know the lights in the NICU have, you know, a negative effect on the circadian rhythm development of babies. There's ample research on that. So what can you do yeah. It, can you advocate to stop the beeps? Can you advocate to yep. dim the lights? Yeah, you can. The same as like in your birth where you can control the environment a lot that a lot of people don't know in a hospital birth, you can in the NICU too. Um, you can say, I want my baby to be in dim lighting or dark lighting all the time. Um, and unless they're doing some kind of procedure <coughs> or something like that, they can do that. Not this, not that's not necessarily in every NICU, but it's always worth asking. And it's also to just to say for everything you're advocating for, for holding more, for having procedures done with baby on your chest, for lights, for noise, all of it. Just keep asking for the most senior person. Just be like, who is in charge here? I need to have a conversation with them. Um, because, you know, Everyone, everyone has, you know, huge amounts of things that they need to do. Um, the easiest thing for them to just say is, no, I'm not going to add one more thing. Um, and so, so you might not actually be asking in honesty, like in a, in a real way where there's going to be uh, someone thinking about what you're asking for. And so you can always just say, I need to speak to the doctor in charge. I need to speak to the nurse in charge. Um, and say like, I have serious concerns. I know that my baby's going to do better in dim low lights without this beeping noise. Hold, if I hold them more, what can we do here to make this happen? I like that you brought up to the, uh, the procedures being skin to skin. That's again, they're doing procedures without that. So in my case, they, they had to replace my son's IV line and they were like, you don't want to see this go out, get out of here. Like, this is going to be too hard for you to see. And I was like, no, I will, I will be holding him the entire time. They and that was to fun. send you out was, for it. Yeah. They're like, you don't want to see this. And I it's guess, you know what, hard. though, for parents listening, you're going to be told that a lot. I think in most procedures, that is something they do. And I think it's yeah. 
hard. You know, they do send you away for anything. And I remember that was what I was told. My son had a very bad tongue tie, like couldn't mm -hmm. get his tongue out. And I was sent away. I wasn't allowed to be with him for the clipping. And I just thought I'd be lying there holding him. Yeah. And it wasn't allowed. And it's still something that haunts me that I, mm -hmm. I couldn't be there to regulate. And I was yeah. there. It was three minutes and then I was in holding him, but it's still yeah. for those three minutes, he experienced something that I couldn't be there for. And so I yeah. think about, you know, in the NICU that that happens a lot, whether it's an IV line change or whatever else they have to do, if there's tube feeding or anything like that going on, depending on the level, yeah. being there to hold your baby is going to buffer that yeah. experience. And to know that there is really good research um, I definitely recommend people go and go onto Niles and Jill Bergman's website. They have done so much research to show that even the earliest, the very earliest premature babies um, and babies who have serious health complications, even if they're born later, everyone does better skin to skin, no matter what. And they can do the procedures on you. They can give babies oxygen on you. They can, you know, give them light for the Billy Rubin. They can do everything on you. There's no barrier. And, and yeah, there, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to like go there, but there are certain, there's probably a few things that they can't, right? Like I'm sure there's a few procedures they can't, but um, it's always, you know, worth it to say, is it possible? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think so much of it is they don't want the parent around for it. It is that, you know, whether parents are going to interfere or whatnot. So, you know, we talked, I would sorry, I want to go back to the separation because I forgot to ask mm -hmm. when, like in your case, people do have separation, it's going yeah. to happen. Is there anything they can do to make that separation time better for baby? What are yeah. like, how do they kind of mitigate Definitely. that time apart? Yeah, absolutely. So the one, so babies are really attuned to all of the senses from their parents, right? Especially the person who's given birth. So um, your smell is a huge, huge safety signal for baby. I didn't use any scented products at all um, after I gave birth. So any shampoo, I didn't use deodorant at all, like nothing. Um, so I was like, my baby's head is going to be in there and like, it's so close to the milk. I, I'm going to stink a bit, but I know that my baby probably wants that. Um, so yeah, I was like, had a strong smell, um, that wasn't contaminated by any sense. And I do recommend that for families. Cause there's a lot of things we can like dump all over us that is hiding that safety signal for baby or, or making the safety signal confusing. If you use different deodorants each day or different shampoos or different perfumes it's I mean my feeling is just go with nothing so that baby just gets your scent um and then you can leave things there so I would leave like my um shirt my pajama shirt from the night before I would put it like around the side of the bed that was in a safe place that he couldn't go near but it was he, the scent could be infiltrated um and then I would also put breast milk onto his hat and like right near around his face. So that was the smell. That smell was, is, is a safety signal that like can help with stress. Um, and then what, what's the other one? Oh yeah. Leaving babies on their tummy. 
So in the NICU, it is safe for babies to sleep on their on their tummy for most, I can't say for all babies, but for many babies. <coughs> and their stress levels are lower sleeping on their tummy. And because they are constantly monitoring oxygen in the NICU, it is okay for them to be on their tummy. So if your NICU isn't doing that, you can also say that's my preference when I'm not here. That's the way I want my baby to be lying. That's so helpful because I think, and I love the way you call it safety signals. Because mm-hmm. that is right. Like we are the people that you know, a birthing parent is the person they've had sounds, everything connected yeah. to. And and it's okay to be stinky because your baby wants that. That is yeah. your baby loves your smell. The rest of the world may not, but your baby loves it no matter what. So sure. it's this also is good for the zero separation idea is like, let's say, you know, in that, you know, if you're in a loop like I was where you had the two hours where you couldn't hold skin to skin, then you can talk to baby. You can like read them things. Um, you can, you know, still have your hand really close to their face and holding their cheek. Um, you know, there's still a lot of ways that you give your, your scent, your sound, your smell, your, all of your sensory environment to your baby. Yeah. That's awesome. Now I know you had mentioned, um, the medical pressure that mm-hmm. when we've talked previously mm-hmm. about certain things like yep. circumcision and when I, yep. I would, f- I would feel that it doesn't make sense to pressure for unnecessary surgeries for babies that are already vulnerable and in the NICU, it's but shocking. apparently I'm wrong. It's shocking. So I, I don't think this is the case in every province in Canada, but in this many places in the States, they do a, hepatitis B vaccine at birth. And some people are like, that can be completely fine with it. I know that in Canada, they don't give hep B until puberty because that's when you can actually, you know, you are, you know, sexually active, you know, doing more risky behaviors where you could actually contract hep B. So I was like, that makes more sense to me. And Uh, I don't think my baby's going to be having sex with anyone or using intravenous drugs. Um, So I'm like, I, I'm fine. I don't want to do that right now. Right. And he was also, I was also like, and if I did, maybe I'd want to wait till he was 40 weeks or, you know what I mean? Like he's still way younger. Um, So for a lot of things, when, when a premature baby's born, they'll just say like, that's their birth age, right? Like then their term, right? Then that's like as if they're 40 weeks. And I'm like, but they're actually 34 weeks. So like, where's the studies on that? And, you know. Right. And I I always find that hep be weird because as far as I know, and I could be wrong, but from my reading, I think the U.S. is one of the only countries that does that. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's not in Canada. It's maybe there's a province that does it, but I mean, it's not as far as I know, where yeah. my kids have. And the immunity in- doesn't last, necessarily last until the teenage years. So it actually makes way more sense to be vaccinating for it when it's actually a risk instead of doing it really early and then having it not protect someone. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure what the, right the point time. of it is. Like, I don't know what precipitated that. Thing. That was the only answer I could get. Yeah. So the cool. amount, and I am, I fully vaccinated my son for everything. Um, but that just didn't make sense to me. And the pressure to do that was relentless every single day. Oh, are you choosing not to protect your baby again? 
Um, Is that how they phrased it? Yeah. Yeah. And then they'd get like the most senior doctor to come and be like, I'm really, really not okay with this. This is a really bad idea. And I was like, I'm fully informed. And um, it's not happening. Wow. That's because I even remember reading and I wish I could find it, but it was a, a presentation at like, I don't know, it was one of the conferences, um, the big, you know, psych medical, I think it was psych though, where they had looked at outcomes with hep B and found that there was a greater risk of just complications from it, just mm-hmm. whether it's a needle, the bleed, like all that stuff, than any protection. Right. That it was actually one of the most useless shots. If there wasn't some reason to have it, like I'm sure there are specific cases where yeah. a baby yeah. might be at risk because of Ma- if mom has mom it. has it. Yeah, exactly, stuff yeah. like that. But yeah. with barring that, the risk benefit ratio. But also, I would think for vaccines more generally, um, even after the fact, shouldn't they be going by? The right age. The right age, right? Yeah. Like, because yeah. at two months, your son was not two months, really, no. right? He was kind of the maturity. <laughs> yeah, like that's what I, I'm like, yeah. that's, and you wouldn't give those vaccines because they're not going to work well, right? Like, right. like, is his immune system even developed to respond to it? Like, there's, yeah. So I ended up doing all of his vaccines at his, you know, with his corrected age. Right. So like that was my choice. Right. Everyone has their own choices with all this stuff. But that was the the pressure I had to stand up to was is the issue. Right. And if you're okay with it, great, you do it. If you're not, no, you know, you're going to have, you know, issues. Right. And the other one was circumcision, which which is mind blowing to me Um, that it was also posed as, you know, are you sure you're not going to do this? Like, why aren't you going to do it? See, I Um, have to ask about this because, you know, the vaccine, I can say, I I mean, you and I have just discussed the the evidence, the lack of it being in other countries. Like, it's just not a question I ever had when my kids were born. Um, But circumcision on a child that's in the NICU, does that not by definition, constitute unnecessary procedure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Totally unnecessary. It is, it was so bizarre to me. It was so bizarre to me that I would have, it wasn't as much as the vaccine, but it was like every couple days, the senior doctor would be like, what are you doing? I have a picture of his little, like he had a little card at the bottom of his bed. And that was one of the things for discharge that needed to be checked, that they wanted to be checked off. Sorry, they wanted him to be circumcised in order to leave. How did that have anything to do with his health? Did not. Did not. Did not. Because, you know, from what I've read in Canada, or at least Ontario, they won't do circumcision on preterm like premature babies, it's not even a, you can ask for it and they will tell you no. Yeah. It's just because it's not good for the baby to undergo more stress and more mm-hmm. risk with bleeding. Their their whole system isn't prepared for yep. unnecessary like surgery. Anesthesia necessarily, all of it, right? Like, it's, 
It was really, really weird. So I guess one of the lessons is if you're there, no, you don't need to circumcise. If you have a boy in the NICU, that is not necessary for discharge. Even exactly. if it's on the, the little chart there, you don't have to do it. And in fact, you know, other countries, I mean, generally don't do it, but even in places like Canada, where it's still relatively common, lower so than the US, but their evidence-based view is we won't even do it on a child in the NICU. That is just not even, sorry, you, you can want it all you want, but the answer is no. Yeah. It's again, do no harm. Like that's yeah. Shocking. That is absolutely yeah. shocking you, to me. You know, you're doing it for religious reasons, for whatever. Again, at the for, at the age corrected time, and that's what I'd heard too. Right? Is even in Jewish religious rites, it's always age corrected. It's they they're not doing it, you know, on a baby that's thirty four weeks. That's not how it goes. Yeah, and Definitely. so I've had clients in that position. Yeah. Wow. It is. Yeah. I, that's insane to me because that seems so like the medical pressure for unnecessary procedures screams not evidence-based by any evidence measure. Like, I don't know where you find the research that says this is what we should do. Yeah. Yeah. It's really scary. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, yeah. that's, that's definitely advocate for yourself on that one. Yeah. Um, and now the risk is for people, again, I'm always thinking of people listening both in the situation and after the fact, yeah. if yeah. you did do those, what is the risk and how do you kind of, what do you do after? Is it still the same, just skin to skin, everything? But what is, you know, we're sitting here talking about the research because we know it, yeah. but what are the risks to those unnecessary procedures in terms of a developmental perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think the whole point of all of this whole conversation is for babies in the NICU and for parents who have babies in the NICU is to keeping your stress system in mind at all times. And we want to be buffering stress for babies and for parents as much as possible, because we know when we get, when we experience high levels of stress for prolonged periods of time, it is not good for us. It is not good for anybody's health. And that is sort of the goal of all of these um, topics is to be, you know, keeping stress, you know, when it does happen, making sure it's supported and, and people are held and taken care of when it happens and avoiding unnecessary stress and distress. Yeah. And after the fact, you know, again, going back to that brain plasticity you yeah. can build that resilience, reset some of it. So if you were in there, you were told all this, your baby had all these procedures that may have been unnecessary. Yeah. You can overcome that through, again, kind of zero separation at home, whatever the age, just go yeah. back to that zero separation and you're building things up again. Completely. Like I have a client now who's, you know, coming into all of this stuff and starting from the beginning at about you know, 12 months, she's like starting skin to skin, starting lots of holding and carriers to learn how to be more responsive to emotions and stress states it can happen. It can happen later. Absolutely. Which is wonderful. So yeah. there's one other area. Well, there's a few other areas, but I know I'm cognizant of time, but one I really want to talk about is breastfeeding, chest feeding, mm -hmm. because I have heard, you know, I had Lindsay Hookway on who 
talked about yeah, it in yeah who talked about it but not in the NICU but in the, the PICU is it the PIC yeah, the, the, the pediatric intensive care unit and yeah. there's a lot of struggles there now I know as you mentioned baby friendly is a lot about kind of this mm-hmm. the feeding being yeah. worked in as, and not forcing it so this is all for people who want to yes. but even without wanting to what I've read is there are benefits to NICU babies having some form of breast milk, whether it's mom or someone else. So what are the benefits there for babies? What are the struggles for families and what can they do to advocate there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of my biggest tips for any family um, regardless is to meet and find a IBCLC or breastfeeding expert, preferably an IBCLC, just because you don't know what's going to happen, um, that you get along with, trust, and feel like they're going to support your feeding goals before you give birth. Because when you get into the hospital, the feeding professionals there are great, but the systems, I mean, they're not always great, actually. They can be or they can't be. They're trying their best, but the systems in the hospital are inconsistent and you are not going to be seen by what you're going to be seen by a different person every single day, most likely. Right. Who's like not going to know what's happened and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I would say definitely if that if feeding is your goal, you want someone who you know and trust to be there uh, before you give birth to sort of give you some prep and to be a trusted person who you can have support you after you've given birth and in the, the weeks after you bring your baby home too, because like Tracy mentioned, tongue tie, right? Like this can happen um, a lot. And you want one person who you trust guiding all of that care, because when you get, after you have a tongue tie, then you, you still need support. Then, you know, you still need to often have physical therapy for the baby and help, you know, have support and having them latch and all this kind of stuff. Like it's, it's something that we as parents have to take control over because um, there isn't a system that's going to come to us. We have to create that system of support. And your comment about the hospitals and the the support there. I remember years ago, I reached out as a question. I'd heard so many people complaining about, you know, IBCLCs, they're forcing breastfeeding. It was all this. Mm -hmm. So I asked, what were people's experiences with lactation support? And it was really interesting because they're predominantly very positive stories, yep. but there were negative ones. There were situations where people felt pressured, bullied, not supported, mm-hmm. not listened to. And they were almost exclusively like 98% in the hospital. Yeah. That was where the struggles came when they had someone outside, an individual um, or even a clinic that might be there. Yeah. They had wonderful experiences yeah. and it was the hospital area. And I think, as you said, that lack of a, a system, right? It's just so different. They don't have it in place. And I know that's what the Baby Friendly Initiative is trying to fix, but yeah. it hasn't always been successful depending on where you are, the level of, of knowledge and support that they have. So I think that's a really crucial piece that it is when we do see these negative stories that come out, at least from my experience of asking families, it was almost exclusively in the hospital system. Yeah, I had really every lactation consultant I saw in the hospital was wonderful, 
but it was a different person every single day. And so I luckily had a pretty straightforward feeding um, journey, but um, it's not the case for a lot of people. Like you do need help most of the And time. I've also heard uh, stories where the lactation support in the hospital is not an IBCLC. Yep. These are people that have minimal training. They are not actual experts in this. Yep. And if you are getting an IBCLC, you probably have a much better experience with that. I know I had a friend who had lactation support um, out in BC. Wonderful experience. They actually are a hospital that seems to have it down because nice. they had failure to thrive and was not supplemented, was not, they dealt exclusively with yeah. her feeding and it was a wonderful outcome. I mean, just exactly yeah. what you'd hope for, but it was, you know, so it is asking who are you getting the advice from? Are they? And I guess that continuity of care, which we know is so important for people. The person yeah. who saw something yesterday can see the difference the next day. When it's a different person every time, they're missing these little changes and things that yeah. go on. But There's what is hospitals who don't allow their IBCLCs to diagnose tongue ties or lip ties? If they see it, they can't tell them. They can't tell a mom or dad. Um, yeah. Why? Because well, those are those are not baby friendly hospitals. Um, I don't know why. That's like telling that's a doctor you can't tell me if my appendix is about to burst. Just yeah. you know, no, yeah. can't tell them. We're just gonna yeah. keep. That's insane. Yeah. Um. Now I, I want to ask though, what is the importance of human milk yes. for babies in the NICU? Yeah, it's it's really important. A lot of hospitals will have human milk banks. Um, because of whatever happens with your birth, it might take more time for milk to come in. Um, one thing that people can do if they do carry to 37 weeks is you can actually start collecting colostrum at 37 weeks, regardless, like of if you know you're going to be in the NICU or not, you can do it just in case so that your baby does have nourishment right away. Um, Colostrum is really important because it coats the baby's gut in antibodies and um, other, um, yeah, both nutritional and immune system stimulating and also gut microbe feeding contents. Um, so, yeah, so human milk has a lot of benefits for baby. And I mean, a lot of it is based in what I just said, right? It's stimulating for the immune system. Um, it's feeding, it's feeding gut bacteria, which is also really important for, for brain development and, um, yeah. And it's giving baby all of the nutrients that baby needs. Um, so it is, it is really good to also advocate for human milk if you can. I wasn't able to because they had a cutoff at 32 weeks and, um, but you can get donor milk wherever you're comfortable. Some, I wasn't comfortable having it donated from a, one of my friends who was offering it at the time. It just didn't feel comfortable to me at the time. Um, but some people are comfortable with that. And like, there's, that's, that's okay too. Um, so it is beneficial um, to do that. And also to try to, to pump, you know, to work with that lactation consultant that you hopefully have that's supporting you to pump in a way that's going to help um, express milk to come out. Yeah. Yeah. And with the donated milk, I know um, 
there's now a, a push to create, and I'm so mixed on it because there's issues here surrounding the the commercialization of breast milk, right. but they are creating formulas that have breast milk in it that yeah. is kind of, so for preemies, for NICU babies, so that it's yes. fortified with breast milk to be able to get yeah. what babies need. Because they do know as much as whatever your feeding choice is after in the NICU, it is really important to try and get that human milk into yeah. our babies for all the reasons Greer just mentioned. And like it is can also get have issues with their intestines with formula. Yeah. It, it is. It's yeah. So the risk there is is high. So it's yeah. not a matter of of choice. I mean it is, but it it's not a matter of just a a risk benefit equivalency. It, it really is quite important at this age. So yeah. you do want and that's again that question that you can ask ahead of time when you're looking at a hospital ask to look at the NICU if you have a, a high risk uh, or even just knowing I think because you never know you're going to go into that situation right when you're choosing a birth location so finding out what they have do they have human milk available because whether your choice is to to breast or chest feed or not yeah. um, you may not be able to right away as you say Greer your milk may take a long time to come in so you yeah. can't account for you being able to do it necessarily. So you want to find out what they have in place to be able to provide for your child and knowing something like, is it a 32 week cutoff? Is it a 34 week? Like what? And then asking what happens after that fact? Yep. Cause then you might be able to go out and be like, Oh, is there a human milk? Like I would have loved to know to have that set up. Like, Oh, is there a human milk bank that I know is screening for diseases that, um, that I could, you know, get milk from. Or is there, you know, a person I feel safe with getting, you know, potentially getting milk from? Um, or, yeah, like, is there another bank? Is, does a different hospital supply to older babies maybe, right? And I think having, yeah, all of that planned ahead of time, whether you need it or not, it's insurance. It's one of yeah. those things that, you know, to think about. Because as you said, even you had one friend offer that you weren't comfortable with, but you very well in your pregnancy may have thought, hey, you know what? This person... Yeah. is lactating. I trust them. And to have that conversation yep. ahead of time with a, Hey, maybe I come to you, maybe I don't, but mm-hmm. yeah, if you. I need this, are you able to provide it? Yeah. Um, do you have time for one last area to, to talk sure, about? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's the communication. Yeah. Because, you know, we're sitting here talking about advocacy. Um, and, and there's two realms of communication. It's how do you talk to doctors because you go in guns blazing Mm -hmm. and you may not get the outcome you want. And I know that because that's the kind of way I approach things. And I, I I've learned that they don't Mm -hmm. tend to like it. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it seems one of the things I'm kind of getting here, even from the beginning of what you said, people said different messages from different people. Yeah. And how do you navigate those differences? Yeah with that it's really hard because you're so vulnerable you just had a baby you hopefully have some of this information you know what your goals are um and then yeah and then you're now put in this position where you have to be keeping all of this communication straight all of this facts straight all you know all the medical history stuff Um, So it's really hard. I mean, I would definitely want, I would definitely think it would be great to have a partner there keeping notes, 
and this kind of stuff as well, because you do in the NICU get one story from one doctor, another story from another, you know, like for just, for example, you know, one doctor was the main doctor was like, everything's going great. You guys are like on your way out. And then someone came in the next day and they were like, yeah, we're thinking of doing this caffeine treatment. That means you'll be here for two more weeks. And then you're like, what the heck is going right? Um, so the communication often is not clear. Um, and then you'll also have one nurse saying, oh, you have to keep this baby on this strict schedule when you get home. And then another nurse saying, do whatever you need to do and just be the parent you are. Right. And so you're just getting conflicting information from everyone. Right. So, so I think with the medical stuff, keeping notes, um, and asking a lot of questions and, um, yeah. And trying to get the, you know, most direct story. It's a challenge, right? It's something it's, it's unfortunately something that we have to take on in that spot. Um, and then the baby care stuff, you can do your own. (laughs) Just let them talk and let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't worry. Exactly. I do like the idea of taking notes though. And I think about it, you know, just for I remember postpartum. I didn't remember half of what, you know, had happened the day before. You're so messy. So having a little notebook where when it happens, you write, doctor came in, said this, this is how we go. But also I would think, you know, nowadays there's an added layer. In most places, two parents can't be in together. Yeah. Right. Because of of COVID. So I think about, you know, if you are taking turns as Mm -hmm. to who's in you know, at a given time, that can be your form of shared communication. Yeah. You know, you may forget to tell, there's so much going on. You may not be able to tell your partner, oh, this is what the doctor said. But if they go in and then someone comes in, your partner can go to the book, be like, oh, no, wait, doctor said yesterday, this other thing so that everyone has the same information. And I always hate saying you have to take on more. But as you said, yeah, I think this is just unfortunately one of those cases where you do. Yeah, it is. And I think at the end of the day, I think that a lot of NICU families have this journey, right? We call it a journey. It's like two steps forward, one step back. It's up and down. Baby's doing great. Oh, now there's an issue. Then they're doing great again, right? It's, it's, it is a journey with a lot of ups and downs. And I think at the end of the day, knowing that, you know, go back to you and your baby. This is about your, you and your baby's relationship you are doing your best to be, you know, close to your baby, responsive to your baby and your baby's safe place. Like just focusing on that, is that something you can meet successfully every single day? And yes, you can advocate for all the things to support that. You can advocate for the medical care and all this kind of stuff. Um, But to also kind of surrender to a a bit, a little bit that it is going to be a ride and a journey with ups and downs. But something like you can go home every single night to and be like, I did my best today to like hold my baby, feed my baby, tell them I love, you know, love my baby. Um, That's that's something to like, I think is helpful. Yeah. And I just wanted to add one thing here about just the communication piece, too, is, you know, Sometimes if you're going to do something like I love how you said, you know, sometimes, you know, you held your baby longer than that hour and went as long as you could. You don't always need to tell them you're doing that. If you know what you're doing is, 
you know, sometimes you don't need to fight a battle. You yeah. need to just do it. And, you know, it's that whole don't ask for permission first, just mm -hmm. ask for forgiveness after. And yeah. not that you need to ask for forgiveness for this, but from that perspective, it you don't want to flag them to the yeah. idea that you might be the person they want to check on more to, you know, keep an eye on more. It yeah. is about staying under the radar as much as possible. Yeah. And if you have a nurse that, say, does support this and dies with you, always work to try and get that person That's what I in, did. Yeah. with your back. It's like, yeah. I only had, when my daughter was born, I was in for one day, right? Like it was, I didn't even overnight. I, I went home that night, but even that time I was there, you know, the hospital policy was no co-sleeping, no bed sharing. Mm -hmm. You know, there was the plastic bin that I was supposed to put my daughter in that yeah. I was like, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And, um, I luckily one nurse came in and was like, oh, you're fine. Just sleep with your baby. But because you'll get in trouble, I'm going to shut the door and I'm going to put the do not disturb, which means when they come to do the hearing test and everything, they'll miss you. So you're going to have to go do it. And I was like, Perfect. Great. I will happily go to the like audiology clinic another day and have yeah. them do that little hearing test. I'm not worried about it. Yep. Um, and so every time I wanted something, I would try and get her for a question for that, just that little day. Um, yeah. And if you have someone just grab onto them that's and a good, that's don't a let good go. Point. Yeah. I had someone who was like, could see what I was like on to. And she was like, come here. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do here. Right. And that, and yeah, I did ask for her as much as I could. And that was and really cool. They know the system. And yeah. so sometimes having someone who's on the same page as you, it was like the advice of, I've got to shut the door here and yeah. we're going to do this and that. If anyone else knocks, you know, I'll have them, they'll have to knock to come in, but you'll have to, you'll be forewarned yeah. and you know, go that way. So they know the system, they know how to help you because there are especially nurses out there that really do know the benefits of this zero separation of yeah. everything. And they can help you within the system as much as they can in giving yeah. you advice as to how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You're not going to change the system as a parent in the NICU, but you can advocate and ask as much as you can for the things that you want. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. so let me just end here. How is your little boy now? How How's the rest of that gone? The nurturing that we had after the NICU was, yeah, great. He's been met every milestone, growing, like he's amazing. Everything's great. Yeah. Perfect. Which is what yeah. you want to hear at the end there. And it's, and again, if you've been this, it is never too late to start that level of nurturing. It yeah. is... There is no time frame. If your kid's 10, you yep. can start that level of nurturing. It really, you know, as we talked about in the first podcast, and we haven't even gotten to the other types, the brain has these periods, even though we talk about the first three years as being very plastic, there mm -hmm. are these other periods in time where the brain is plastic and it seems to be taking the previous experiences into play. So we know adolescence is another period of, of plasticity and then yeah. becoming a parent. And I believe the other one now coming out is for women menopause. Mm. It also, I believe I read something on that and I have to look it up, but yeah. So there's all these times at which, yep. you know, going along with these big events, things happen. And so it doesn't matter the age there. You're, 
child will always get the benefit of that level of nurturing and that level of contact and support. And it is, it's so vital. People can make a change in their adult children's lives. Yeah, absolutely. If you think about it, I've heard stories of people where suddenly a parent's kind of shifted and, you know, they're adults and suddenly develop this greater relationship because of a shift in their parents' behavior towards them. And it doesn't have to be skin to skin. You know what I mean? That might get a little awkward, but (laughs) you can do more responsiveness, more care that, you know, you didn't necessarily have. And that can have a massive effect. Yeah. I'd like to finish by like saying the other like philosophy I kind of had in my head through all this as well. You know, like all of the things that were happening during the end of my pregnancy was all piling on. And I was kind of like, oh, all of these not ideal things are happening. Like I hated the corticosterone shot. I mentioned that enough already. I didn't want the early birth. I didn't want the NICU, right? All of these things that I know are, you know, a challenge for, you know, for the start and, and for early life. But I think that, you know, for, for all people throughout the pregnancy, birth and infancy period, um, we all have a challenge that happens, right? At least one that's going to happen. And, you know, my message for nurturing the infant brain and the parent brain is about doing your best with this real life experience that we all have. Like there is no perfect brain. There's no perfect parent. There's no perfect baby. It's just, we're all us navigating our reality and we can infuse as much nurture into it as we possibly can. And like, um, and that's it. And that, and that kind of really helped me in that moment be like, this is my baby's story. This is how his birth went. This is how his early life went. This is going to shape his brain. It is going to have an impact. And that's going to make him the unique person that he is because we're all unique and we all go through our own version of, of placenta previa or whatever it is. Um, I love that. And that really helped me as well. And I think, you know, you saying that, I love that because it brings me back to those people that had felt that immense guilt when they read research on stress systems and separation with babies and everything is that it's not the be all end all. And it's not, you know, the research isn't there to make you feel bad, but it is there to dictate, not dictate, to inform us of what we need to keep in mind going forward, just as you have with, yeah, I can nurture the heck out of this kid afterwards. And this is going to shape their brain a bit, but I'm going to shape it even more with what I do afterwards. And I think that's so crucial in that we, yeah, we all have adversities. We all have these moments that I wish my kids didn't experience this, Mm -hmm. but they did. What I have control over is how much support I give them through that. And knowing that what you offer your child for years is going to far outweigh the experiences that you have no control over. Completely. Yeah. Oh, Greer, thank you so much. It is so, I just, thank you for sharing your story too. Cause I think it's, I think it's so important that people hear from someone who's been there. It's you've been there and you had all the knowledge and you still couldn't have the NICU fit 
mm-hmm. what you needed. You knew how to advocate as best as possible. But I think that's so crucial to know that they're not alone. And it's not a failure on their behalf to have not gotten absolutely this, that, or the other in their NICU experience. So I just mm-hmm. want to thank you for sharing that for all your wisdom for families. I hope this makes it a little better. Do check out the Bergman's work on kangaroo care because what, because you said what they're doing is just incredible. And uh, I think we need, you know, that can help in your advocacy for yourself and your baby. And just after too. Yeah. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that the advice has been helpful. And if you are looking for more, there is a download sheet of things to do to overcome the separation that comes from a visit in the NICU in the show notes below. I think it's important to remember that nothing is set in stone. There are so many opportunities to hold, respond, and bond with your baby that we cannot let the start take us down. Now join me next week as I delve into the effects of early psychosocial adversity in children and how this plays out in later childhood and adolescence. And no, we are not talking about the NICU. I'm joined by Dr. Bree Reed, who's focused on the physiological and immunological effects of early deprivation in humans and shares what we can take home from all of her research. I can say some of the findings are definitely surprising. Now in the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.